a question for you as we jump in here. If you could design your ideal week, what would it look like? Now, I'm a guy who tends to waste some time. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, I can be distracted and, and, and maybe less productive than I hope. So I, you know, I follow some productivity people on, on Instagram and I get the emails from whoever else to tell you, you should be time blocking your week. You know, put the hard things in the good spots. And when, you're, when your energy level is low, that's when you check your email. Don't like sort these things out. So block your week out that way. I'm not even really talking about that. If you could create for yourself one week, Sunday to Saturday, that you could repeat again and again and again and again, and it would just, you'd just be happy with that until you get to go be with Jesus. What would it look like? I suspect, I suspect this would include the reality of you know, having to work, having to go to school. It has to be on this. Sorry about that. It's got to be there. But I suspect that many of the things on our calendars would be symbol, similar. For me, I, in my perfect week, I would never get stuck in traffic. I would never get stuck behind someone coming home from Banff who didn't notice that the speed limit changed from in the park to 110 by Harvey Heights. Never. I would never be stuck behind them. That would, that's like, I've got some issues to work through. I don't know. Nobody would ever disagree with me in my perfect week because I'm right so much. That, they're laughing at that one. I'm not sure why. It wasn't meant to be funny. Everything would go my way. My plans would just, they would just execute. It would go my way. My coffee would always stay hot. It didn't matter where I put my mug down. I'd be able to find that mug whenever I was looking for it. But it would stay hot. And my toast would not burn. And it would also stay hot in the morning. That would just be like, that's, this is the ideal week for me. I, I, I'd have time and space to sit down with a good book and read it without my phone ringing or the doorbell ringing or the kids coming. or I'll just have space by myself to enjoy a good book. I'd never like tweak anything when working out or going for a bike ride or and, and my my lungs and heart would like keep doing their thing even when I'm chasing a guy like Ian around the Nordic Center on those skis, right? I just have the cardio to keep up with these guys. If I could define my perfect week, it'd be one where everything goes just swimmingly. There'd be no difficulty and definitely no suffering. How about you? What would it look like? Well, the passage we're going to work through this morning is one of maybe the most difficult, maybe most, uh, not difficult, but radical in the Bible. So often we talk about how Jesus has come to, to usher in God's kingdom, and when we compare the kingdom that Jesus is bringing with the kingdom of the world, we see Jesus just kind of flips it on its head. It's, it, we've called it often the upside-down kingdom because what Jesus wants us to, to strive for and aim for and what he gives us almost seems like, like backwards. And so we're going to be in the end of 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open up there or click there or swipe there, whatever it looks. This chapter is kind of the crescendo of the letter. Everything's kind of being built up to this point, and Peter's been, been stepping up and up and up, and, and this is kind of the, 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 myth, the middle of it. The whole letter has been written to, uh, we read to start with, a group of churches, uh, Gentile churches, so not Jewish churches, to try to help them understand their place in the world as followers of Jesus. And so it's written also to us to say, listen, I, I know, Peter says, I know that when you look at the world around you and what Jesus has called you to, you will feel like an outsider. 
Because Jesus has called you to something just radically different. He's written to us under as the title of, of strangers and aliens, or the, the elect exiles, the one who, who feel like you're, you're just not home. And the, in the letter throughout, and then here maybe especially, he reminds us that God has called his people, the life that, that God has called his people to is not to strive for comfort and pleasure as our highest aim. He, God has called us not to put ourselves as king and queen of our own lives. But instead, he's called us to a new normal, something that's different from the world. He's called us to a life that, as one writer says, is, is so amazed and directed by the glory of God, by the stunning beauty of his kingdom, by the amazing reality of grace, that we would be willing to walk toward difficulty, to involve ourselves in suffering, because those things don't actually change the glory that has now engaged our hearts. When I think about that kind of life, the, the, the life that is, is headed towards Jesus and is not worried about what challenge and difficulty and suffering can do to me, I realize I've got some work to do. I've got a ways to go. I've, I've got some growing to do here and that I need God's continual outpouring of grace in my life. So we're going to pick it up this morning at verse 12, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. And this passage is, is kind of an instruction manual or maybe like a, a textbook on how we deal with difficulty and suffering in life. And it really is, this really is what sets the Christian faith apart from other religions and worldviews. See, the Christian walks straight into difficulty and suffering, doesn't try to ignore it, doesn't try to avoid it. We don't just plug our ears and close our eyes and go la 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 and pretend it doesn't exist. How do we respond to suffering? These verses are loaded. We could spend weeks or months in what we're going to cover just today. Uh, we won't, but we could. But let me encourage you to maybe spend some time, if, if you carve out time to spend in your Bible this week, sit here for a little bit in these verses. Read them slow. And again, and again, and again, and see what the Lord has to say. See, the radical difference about the Christian worldview is that God is at the center, and his plan is at the center, and his grace is our only hope. So let's jump in here. The first thing Peter tells us to do when suffering comes our way is, do not be surprised. Look at verse 12. Dear friends, I should say here, I said in the first, it's important. Sometimes we see these little greetings like, Oh, brothers and sisters, oh, friends, oh, my little child. Don't just skip over those. You've heard me say, I don't know how many times, there's no wasted words in the Bible. Peter loved these churches. He loved these people. He, he knew they were going through hard things. And, and again and again, he just wants to remind them that this isn't just an academic exercise that he's telling them to do. Do this checklist and you'll be good. He's like, no, I really I really do care about you guys, and I know it's hard. And so let me just try to encourage you here. So whenever you find an intro like this, be reminded that this isn't just some computer-generated book. This is a, a, an author with a heart who's also communicating God's heart for you. So dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening. There's two kind of key words in that phrase that we want to key in on. First is, is surprised and unusual. These things describe something that's out of the ordinary. 
right? Don't be surprised about this. Don't be surprised as if something unusual is happening when you hit trial. Here's something we need to understand, and, and it might sound a little bit harsh when I say it, but bear with me. If you're a follower of Jesus, and you treat difficulty, whether it's something small or something big, as something that's weird or unusual or out of the ordinary, and you're surprised by it, then you're not actually thinking biblically about who you are, who God is, what he's called us to do, and what's going on in this here and now of our lives. Right? If, we're, if we're surprised by trial, we've missed something. To, to expand on that a little bit, the more we think of suffering as weird or strange to us, the more we actually need to grow in our understanding of what God is all about. Here's what I mean. If God's master plan, his best plan for our life, was for us in the statistically 80-some years we have on this world to be comfortable and find pleasure, that's a horrible plan. And it's clearly not working because every single one of us has experienced pain and suffering and hurt in our life, right? So why is suffering presented as Peter's new normal? There's a couple of reasons that we shouldn't be surprised about this. First, God has, has actually chosen for us to remain in the world. He hasn't forgotten about us. God hasn't taken all the good disciples out and is like, okay, once you reach this certain level of knowing God, poof, you're gone. And then the rest of us look around and are like, but I was pretty good, but why am I still here? God hasn't forgotten about you. His, his timetable hasn't been messed up by anything. This is just the reality of living in a world where sin still exists. There's hurt. There's brokenness. There's pain. Just because we're followers of Jesus, we don't escape that. And more than that, every one of us has a purpose in this world, too, to bring Jesus' light to it, to, to come to those moments of, of pain and difficulty and, and, and say, there's more than just this life. We, we, we don't have to be... Uh, surprised by this. We're looking to something so much greater. God has chosen for us to remain in the world. We also will suffer because we identify with Jesus. Jesus was clear about this when he taught his disciples. He said in, in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. He also told them, you know, the world has hated me and what I've taught and what I'm bringing, and so it will also hate you. Welcome to another warm and Sunday, sunny Sunday morning, right? But Jesus told us this. We, we should be prepared for it. doesn't mean you have to like it. Also, if we identify with Jesus, if, if we step out against the prevailing teaching and way of our world, the way that says, you know what? I will rule my life. I'm all I need. I'm autonomous. I, I, I can decide what's good for me, what's right for me. I can decide truth and fiction. I can decide all these things. If we step out from against that, Anytime we say, no, 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 there is actually a real authority. There is actually truth. There is actually that. It will bring us into conflict. And we're seeing this more and more around us, aren't we? The, the, the norms of our world have, have departed from any sense of truth and, and being rude in something like the Bible. And instead, now we're just chasing after kind of enlightenment and, and post-enlightenment thinking that says, or philosophy that just says, you know what, I'm all there is. 
I think therefore I am, so I'm going to kind of chase after whatever I want. The third thing, again, look at, he says, to expect a fiery trial. Now, it's been a while since we were back in chapter 1. It was probably September or so when we were in chapter 1. So you might want to flip back to chapter 1 and look at verse 3 to 9. But Peter tells us that God will use trials and difficulties not to, like, make us upset or, or force us to go through hard things, but to refine us, to grow us, to help us become more like who we're supposed to be. If we go through our entire lives with just smooth sailing, what have we got? Uh, no stick to I can tell you that. My, this comes <laughs> very true in my life when I think about things like math and junior high and high school math. I, I coasted through some of these things, and then calculus hit, and it was the end of the world. And I didn't know what to do. I hadn't, I hadn't had to, to, to work hard necessarily. I try to say this humbly, right? But like, I, I hadn't had to learn study skills. And then all of a sudden, like, I'm not an engineer today for a good reason. Nobody wants, nobody wants my calculus skills there. But we need to go through the hard things. This is what I'm trying to say there. To test us, to temper us like metal, to strengthen us. And so... The, the, the difficulties we go through, God uses them for his purposes. It all means that, that suffering in this life is actually inescapable. We will all go through it. The second uh, directive in this passage, Peter says, is to be determined to rejoice. Look at verse 13. He says, Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. That's really the key there as we look to Jesus in all this so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I can tell you this for sure. When you're in the middle of, of trial and difficulty and suffering, if your heart is headed in the direction of rejoicing, God is at work in your life. Because that's not normal. That, that's not something you learn from this world, that when you go through hard things to give God glory. And I, I think we know this. How many times has some minor inconvenience caused you to say something, do something, think something that you wouldn't want anyone else in this room to know about? For some of us, we can, we can stub our toes and then question whether God actually loves us. Right? So in the midst of the struggle, again, we don't, we don't chase after hurt and pain and, and, and do it like, like a kind of masochist, but in the midst of our struggle, we need to ask ourselves, what is it in, the, in this experience that God might be using to strengthen me, to grow me, and to give me a reason to rejoice? What's he, what's he doing in this? Again, I'm not saying to, to, to celebrate pain, to rejoice when a relationship breaks down or when you lose a job. And a sickness isn't fun. And Peter's not saying, go get sick so you can rejoice. No, he's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is that there is a God who is in control and who is doing something that maybe we can't see. And that something is worth rejoicing in. And when we're in the moment and all we see is the pain and we don't get to the rejoicing, we miss out on something that God wants to do. Again, at verse 13, he says, Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. You may rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed as well. 
I said earlier that, that this is something that's unique about Christianity, and, and it is. Uh, many people look to, to Jesus and to Christianity and bring up the question of suffering and the question of evil and say, you know what, I can't believe in that because there's evil. So how could there be a good God and evil in the world? And so they reject Jesus. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you've heard this. However, rejecting Jesus doesn't answer the question of evil and suffering in the world, does it? It's still there. And so we have to be honest with ourselves and say, okay, if I'm going to reject Jesus' answer to evil and suffering, I have to find another answer. So let me briefly and with not enough time give you some of the alternatives. I am trying to like represent these other views well, but we could spend a week on each one of these. So some alternatives. First, New Age philosophy. This is, you've been, you've been exposed to this, you've seen this, you've, you've heard some of these things. It's, it's rooted in what's called pantheism, which is that all is one and all is God. God is everywhere. God's in the trees. God's in the air. God's in all, all the things. Some of the, the your typical New Age practices would be uh, meditation, uh, just kind of praying to the universe or to whatever thing might be God. The power of positive thinking is a very New Age kind of concept. Uh, and, and aiming for uh, to, to try to unlock or unleash some sense of illumination or enlightenment. And when you dig into New Age philosophy, it says that, in fact... Evil and suffering do not exist. It's all maya. It's all an illusion. And if you attain that state of enlightenment, you'd know this. So it denies the reality of evil. Is that a better alternative? You don't have to answer, but that's one of them. Another example, Hinduism. I would suspect none of us would raise our hands and say, yes, I'm a Hindu. However, we've all toyed with karma, right? Which is very Hindu. We all, in the Bow Valley, we love our yoga, many of us. We love some of the concepts, and we try to maybe Christianize them a little bit. But let me tell you, I don't know, I don't know how that works, and we can talk more about that another time. But but Hinduism says that evil and suffering come from karma, this sort of impersonal force of justice that operates as strictly as the laws of justice, uh, the laws of, excuse me, physics. Physics says what goes up must come down. Karma says if you put out good, you get back good, right? So we may not say, no, I totally believe in this and, and the reincarnation, all that thing, but how many of us have said what goes around comes around? And I hope they get theirs. The root idea here is that suffering is deserved. The reason you're going through something hard is because you've done something wrong. And so you, this is your just deserts. And so the idea is that you can't and you even shouldn't try to help people in their suffering because they've earned that. And so they need to go through the bad stuff so that maybe in the next life they can have something good. Now, we can't just take these concepts by themselves, but is, is that a better alternative? The last one we'll, we'll touch on quickly, and it's massive, so it, again, I'll try to represent it well in just a couple of minutes, would be secularism or atheism or naturalism. The core tenet here is that we're here by accident. Everything came from nothing. There's no 
absolute truth. There's no guiding principles. There's no God. We just, we just got lucky. Physics happened. I'm not sure where physics came from, but physics happened. Big bang and all that, and here we are. And so, the world is a harsh place and only the strong survive. That's our answer to evil and suffering. The so-called rock of atheism is that, that since evil and suffering exist in the world, a good God cannot. But Christianity tells a very different story. Christianity tells a story not of a, a ruthless, evil world that if you're not strong enough, you just get passed by. It doesn't tell the story of an impersonable force. It doesn't tell the story of just the illusion of evil, but it tells the story of God himself stepping into time and space and experiencing the worst evil in all of history, the creation murdering the creator and putting Jesus on a cross. But that's not the end of the Christian story, is it? In the middle of that first Easter weekend, which we get to celebrate in about a month here, it looked like all was lost and Jesus was dead. But Jesus went through that suffering. He didn't go through it for nothing. Out of the most horrendous evil, us killing God, came the greatest good. Jesus being able to exchange his righteousness for my sinfulness. Out of the most horrendous evil came the opportunity for me to cling to Jesus and have all my sin washed away. His suffering was followed by his resurrection and his glory. And I know it's hard to wrap our minds around this. I know sometimes it's hard to believe that God could use our deepest suffering or the deep evil that's been done to us or that we see happening in the world, and he can use it for his good. But if we look to Jesus, he says, yes, I can. When we look at Jesus, we see that there will be a day when our here and now pain is over, and one day we'll be standing face to face with our Savior. We'll be joined with him in his glory. And at that moment, when we're standing in his presence, his glory will overwhelm every moment of pain and rejection and tear and sorrow that we ever faced. And so we believe that every step of our lives, every day, every moment, including moments of suffering, are marching us towards being with him. The third thing Peter says here is to keep your suffering pure. Look at verse 15. He says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Peter here is showing his pastoral heart again, that this isn't just some academic exercise. He's written a textbook to send to some churches he doesn't care about, will never meet, never been. He, he loves these people, and he loves us. And he knows how our hearts work. When we hit hard times, we are spiritually vulnerable. It's in the moments of, of, of struggle or when, when, when we, we hit difficulty or suffering or when we see evil that we start to wonder, is following Jesus actually worth it? And so much of the Bible testifies in the Psalms, maybe especially, especially a Psalm like Psalm 73, deal with this question and without diving in too much, let me just say, yes, he's worth it. But Peter wants us to understand that the suffering he's talking about here isn't the kind that comes from your own bad behavior. Because every one of us is, is, is very capable of causing trouble for ourselves, right? 
If I'm a jerk to someone, they're not going to treat me well. They might even punch me in the nose. And I've earned it. And that's not for me to go say, oh, somebody, God, somebody punched me in the face because I was being a whatever. I'm suffering for you. Right? That's, that's, not, the, that's not the thing here. We're capable of causing trouble and bringing our own consequences. But Peter's calling us to a high standard, as did Jesus, as did God. And the standard is holiness. Be holy as I am holy, right? He calls us to a God-honoring life no matter what we're experiencing. Suffering doesn't change the standard. It's not like when things are going well, Peter says, okay, here's your standard, holiness. But if you stub your toe, okay, we'll drop that down a bit. You can let fly with your tongue a little bit. And then when you're feeling better, back to here. When you're going through struggle or difficulty, let's just drop the bar. The standards now make it to next Sunday. Well, the standard is always holiness. And we might look at the list Peter gives and say, well, I haven't murdered, I haven't stolen, I haven't meddled. But listen, we, we've said many times, and you're going to keep hearing me say that our actions come from our hearts. Our minds and our hearts have gone where our actions have gone long before. Jesus said this as well, right? He said, you've heard it said, don't murder. And people are kind of like, no problem. Haven't murdered. Feeling pretty good about my life. But I tell you, don't be angry. Because that murder is the action that comes out of anger in your heart. All of a sudden, I'm sure the room's pretty quiet. Jesus says, don't commit adultery. And I'm like, okay, I haven't stolen a wife. I haven't stolen a husband. He says, no, no, but I say, don't look with lustful eyes. Because that action comes out of your heart. He says, don't, you've heard, you know, don't steal, but I say, don't even, don't even covet, don't even desire something. So I suspect as I look around the room and even look into a camera and guess, none of us have murdered anyone, but has your suffering ever made you angry? Peter's calling that out. You may not have, have stolen anything from someone, but has your suffering led you to want to, to steal somebody else's life and have it for yourself? And I wish, I wish that was my story. You may not be someone meddling, but have you ever thought, you know, man, I look at this difficulty in my life and they should have that, and I should have something else. One writer challenges us and says, are you committed to living a life that pleases your Savior no matter what? Does your obedience weaken in moments of difficulty? Or when you're going through trial, do you find it hard to read and pray? No, but you, but that, that, that's something easy to... That, to, to slip into, right? Man, things are hard. I got to work hard, harder to get myself out of this. And the first thing I give up is instead running to the text, running to my Savior. Do you wonder if it's worth coming to services of worship when you're struggling? Do you, do you sing hymns with less enthusiasm when you're struggling? Peter challenges us to keep our suffering pure and keep looking to him. Fourth, in verse 16, don't give way to shame. It says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name, that name being Christian. Peter's all about the big picture. He's always pointing us back to the big picture to take us out of our little blinder circumstances and say, no, no, let's, let's think about what we're actually doing here. And throughout the whole letter, he's been reminding us of our identity and where we find our meaning and our purpose and an inner sense of well-being. He's always said, don't look to the world for those things. And he points us back again to the big picture and says, the, the, the place to find your purpose, your identity, your meaning, your value is in the name of Jesus and having that name given to you as well. Elsewhere, 
a little bit later in the New Testament, uh, John writes, now we are the children of God. See, when, when we follow Jesus, when we commit our lives, when we repent and turn to him and give our lives to him, We've been accepted by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and there's no need for us to go looking for identity anywhere else. All we need is His grace. Jesus said in His life, even though all men forsake me, I'm not alone because my Heavenly Father is with me. We can say the same thing. If, if every one of you forsake me, it doesn't matter because I've got God still. That's the gospel. That's how the gospel transformed the ways transforms the way we think about relationships. Now, we, we do want good relationships with everyone. I, I, I hope all of you don't forsake me and all I have to rely on is just God. Like, we want to build strong neighborhoods and strong communities, but we cannot put our identities in the hands of other people because they, they can't do it. It won't hold up. Peter says, praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Our suffering actually reinforces our identity because we have taken his name. And it doesn't matter what the world does to me or to you because I am his. Fifth, kind of breeze through these last couple, not that they're less important, but we've kind of got the roots for them all. Verse 17, it says, Consider God's judgment. For time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's saying this, this work, it was hard work. It cost Jesus a lot, but he's good. He's done it. The judgment talked about here is more, uh, more of a, a discipline type word, a molding, a shaping word, than a condemning word. Okay? God is holy and has called us as well to be holy, and so he isn't satisfied if we continue in, in ways that separate us from him. And so this, this judgment, this discipline is to shape us and mold us back towards what he created us to be. Finally, verse 19, Peter reminds us to rest as you work. And for many of us, rest and work are, are, are opposites. They're the other ends of the spectrum. We can't do both. If you're working, you can't be resting. If you're resting, you probably shouldn't be working. But Peter puts them together. Look what he says here in verse 19. So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator. There's the rest piece. Give yourself to him. He's good for it. Rest in that. Relax in that. Be, be, be firm in that. Entrust yourselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. There's the work piece. The creator is your savior. The, the one who holds the world in his hands holds you by his grace. The one who owns all the things has the power to supply you with everything you need and to go through what he's called you to go through. Pastor, author, uh, commentator, counselor, Paul Tripp, he's got a lot of hats, says this. Notice, if you would, for a moment, the nervousness or the anxiety that comes into your mind as you go through times of suffering. Will you make it through? Will you have what it takes? How will this turn out? What's going to happen next? And Peter says, in that moment, it's very important not to forget that your hope is not in figuring it all out. Your hope is not in, in, in somehow finding rest in your own understanding, but your hope is in one thing, your Creator Savior who holds all the things in His hands, who rules all things by His power, and who has promised to supply everything you need. 
Peter says, because you can rest in who he is, go get busy with what he's called you to do. Don't waste time trying to figure things out that you won't figure out because you're human and he's God. Don't waste time paralyzed with anxiety because you, you know you can rest in a Savior who rules over everything. You can give yourself to the good work that he has called you to. Now let me say there's always a, a danger in a message like this where I come up and say there's here's a number of verses, here's six things to do, six points. Some of them even had subpoints. I hope you've written them all down as a checklist because there's going to be a test next week on how did you how did you rest? Were you happy when you suffered? Were all these things? There's a danger there. Let me tell you, you cannot do these things by yourself. You cannot. If you try to muscle your way through this list of six, you'll be tired by dinner at best. But it all points us back to the continual transforming grace of Jesus, who is at work in our lives, who wants to carry us through these things. It's all because of his work on the cross, his enduring the ultimate suffering on our behalf so that we can have this life and look forward to his glory. And so I pray that our suffering, our difficulties would refine us. That instead of hitting something hard and trying to, to muscle up and figure it out ourselves, that we would run to our Savior, run to, run to Jesus, and ask him for his forgiveness for when we have tried to do it on ourselves. That forgiveness that he bought for us on the cross, that deliverance from sin that is the gift of the cross, to run to him for the power that the cross displayed and then be filled with his grace as we go get busy. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. I pray that um, that these words would, would kind of rattle us for a few days, maybe for, for a bunch of days. I pray that as we um, go through life that we wouldn't be taken surprised by, by hardship and struggle and suffering. I pray even that, that as, we, as we look at the world around us, if we want to reject your cause for or your reason for evil and suffering, to evaluate our other options, and God, I, I, I know that they will be found lacking and wanting. So help us to come to you. Jesus, thank you for walking this world as you did to show us how to perfectly relate to God and to one another and to creation itself. And Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross. And I pray for, for each of us this morning that we would, we would have in the past, we would maybe today for the first time or for the tenth time or hundredth time, say, Jesus, I don't have it all figured out, but teach me. I want to follow you. I want to know you. And take my life and make it yours. Continue to work in and through me for your grace, by your grace, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.